You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey, welcome, welcome, River. So good to see you guys today. I am uh, in hoping that spring decides to swing back around again, but until then, uh, we're going to enjoy a little bit of cool weather today. Hey, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who served last week. Easter was awesome at Towson. Wasn't that great? That was a lot of fun, and uh, I don't know, there were probably 50 or 60 guests that came that uh, just are not normal river folks, and so, so thrilled, and want to say thank you, everybody who was parking cars, and making popcorn, and coffee, and setting up, and all of those things, so it's a blast, but I'm kind of glad to be back in our house today, and not out there this morning, so if you're new to River, if this is your first or second time here, we're especially delighted that you're here, some of you are probably friends of Sarah, or uh, Adam, so you guys are in the house for their baptism, so special shout out to you guys, and uh, really excited that you're here this morning, and our desire, guys, as a church is just pretty simple. We just want to help people take their next spiritual step toward knowing and following Jesus Christ, because when we do that, we experience a life of change, uh, change after change that he brings as we experience all that God has for us in our life, that we know God personally in a deep and abiding way, and it's just absolutely, absolutely awesome. Well, I started, I've told a couple of people this, but, uh, you know, every week when I stand up and speak, it's always interesting a little bit. But last week in particular, being at the park, the first thing that came to my mind when I stood up to speak was not really that spiritual. It was, what in the world was I thinking? Why am I starting Daniel on Easter Sunday morning? This is not a very good idea. Like, it sounded a whole lot better in January <laughs> sitting at my desk playing out the year than it did uh than it actually did in reality. But uh, anyway, we have started a series in the book of Daniel, and uh, I-, I want you to get the picture. Most of the sermon series that we're, we're talking about, if you've never paid attention, they're usually in the setting of Jerusalem or Israel, you know, in the Middle East. And this one's completely different. Daniel and his friends have been deported to a, a, a country far away that was not their own. They are sitting in Babylon, a different culture, different religion, different people. Uh, a brutal, a brutal culture, in fact, as you'll see just a little bit, you know, this week and next week and in the weeks ahead. And, and I want you to see Daniel and his friends as teenagers whose country was just conquered, whose king was now under subjection of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of uh, what we today would call Neo-Babylonia, uh, New Babylon, if you will. This was about 500 years before Jesus was uh, crucified. And Daniel and his friends were likely 14, 15, 16-year-olds. They were not 20-somethings. They were removed and are in exile away from mom and dad. In essence, they're slaves. In fact, what we saw last week was they they had to ask permission to eat different food than what everybody else was eating. Now, they were living, you know, they had kind of a nice life. The king had identified them as, you know, kind of the cream of the crop, the Uh, the gifted and talented, special people, if you will, and they were being groomed and and went through three years of basically an intense college training where they were learning the language and the culture and the history and the customs of Babylon because they were going to become ultimately court advisors. But think about what that would be like. 14 or 15 years old, your country has just been conquered, probably went through some serious food shortages, all kinds of difficult things. You're now living in a land that is not your own. You're immersed with people that are foreign to you that are completely different. 
and you're living in a culture that's hostile to everything that you believe about God and are living spiritually. That's the world that Daniel and his friends are in. So fast forward a couple of years to the point to where we are now. Daniel is probably 17 or 18 years old, and he is, uh, has literally a, uh, a sentence of death upon his head upon him and all of the other advisors that, that King Nebuchadnezzar has before his court. So having said all of that, can we all agree that those are some serious troubles that they were facing in life, right? Troubles. We all have had troubles, but I'm looking out here this morning and not imagining that too many of us have ever been captured, have ever been forced into servitude. Not too many of us have been slaves. Not too many of us as teenagers have been, you know, shipped off to another land, another people, never to see mom and dads, aunts and uncles, friends, you know, cousins ever again. Not sure whether or not we're going to be cleaning toilets one day or killed the next. Um, serious trouble. I want us this morning to notice that God is the one who wants to give us wisdom. He gives us help in the time of trouble. The story of, of Daniel as a whole as a book is amazing. It's that God is in control of this world and he is driving this world toward his kingdom. But even in the middle of that, he's in control of each of our little worlds. So turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to see God do something amazing in Daniel's life and how God supernaturally... I don't care how corrupt a kingdom is, how corrupt a country, a leader, how brutal they are, how far away from God they are. God is powerful enough to put his people and his witness, his child, right in the very center of that. And he's powerful enough to work in your life and in my life and in the simple, small things day after day after day. So read with me in chapter 2 of Daniel. It's on the screen if you don't have your phone or Bible open. The Bible says this, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled, to know the dream. All right, get the picture. These would, in essence, be the king's cabinet members. He's a new king. History tells us. You could go look it up on Wikipedia. We know so much about uh, Babylon and about this king. Uh, Babylon was most likely the, the first city in all of the world to ever have more than 200,000 people. It became a, a global kind of country, a conquering empire, if you will. Uh, we know Babylon is one, the home of the, you know, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. And so, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar, he's new in his, in his newfound authority, if you will, his new place of responsibility. I think it was Shakespeare that had once said, you know, um, uh, heavy lies the head that wears the crown or something that effect. You literature people can straighten me out later. You know, basically, if you've got a lot of responsibility in life, you don't sleep very well. Uh, you have a lot of trouble. And in, for their world, they look to the stars to help them understand the future, to help them understand what was going to happen in the affairs of people. They look to dreams and put a lot of, a lot of stock in that. 
And so King Nebuchadnezzar was asleep one night and he has this awful dream. We'll, I'll tell it to you in just a minute. And, uh, and he's troubled by it because he knows that it has significant implications for his kingdom and for his future. Like any king, he's trying to figure out what his legacy is going to be, how stable and protected are his borders. Is he building a kingdom that can last, that he can pass down to his kids, that can be there for you know, generations to stand? And the dream that he has shows that there is a powerful force that has the ability to take down kingdoms. So he gets up in the middle of the night, completely trying to understand and figure out this dream, and he brings in his cabinet members who are used to doing everything from, from reading the zodiac, like astrology, you know, kind of reading the stars, if you will, to maybe had a specialty of reading tea leaves, if you will, like all of the people that were used to doing kind of hocus pocus, all kinds of weird stuff and figuring out the future. He brought in all of his members and he said, look, if you can tell me the dream, then I will believe what you t tell me that dream means. Now, how would you like to go in before the king who had the power to kill you, to execute you, to do whatever he wanted to do in that moment? What would you do? I would have done exactly what they did. Hey, king, why don't you tell us the dream? Then we'll explain it to you. You know, the king's like, uh, no, if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, and I'm going to destroy your house, and it's going to be an absolute garbage heap. King, there's nobody on the planet that can do that. Look what the Bible says. In fact, that's what they tell them. They tell them in verse 10, the Bible says, the Chaldeans answered the king. That was kind of his cabinet. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, nobody reading the crystal ball, no enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I want you to notice three lessons this morning that you and I need in times of trouble. Three lessons of wisdom. The first lesson is this. Every one of us is going to need wisdom in a time of trouble. Every one of us. Where do you go when you need to figure something out? Probably the answer to that is it depends, right? If you're trying to fix your car to fix the brakes, you might go to, and you, whatever reason, want to try it yourself, whether you're broke or something else. Uh, you might go to a friend, and you probably are going to Google it and watch a video. How do I fix the brakes on a F-150, you know? How does this work? You go to somebody who knows more than you. All of us, whenever we face trouble in life, we go to someone or something that we think has the power and the ability to give us wisdom, to give us insight. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's day, Babylon's day, is increasingly like our day, or I should say our day is increasingly like their day. It was common for them to go to soothsayers, people that they thought could tell the future. Increasingly in our culture, it's easy, it's commonplace more and more for people to go visit a psychic, to go have their palm read, to go to a place to tell them, you know, hey, is this relationship I'm in going to work? Is it going to be good? What do I need to do for a job? Do you know what's coming down the line in my future love life? I'm told that's, those are probably the two main reasons, and maybe health would be a third one of why people go visit a psychic. 
Today, increasingly, people are involving themselves in uh, talking to uh, like a medium because they want to have a conversation with their deceased grandfather or deceased ancestor. Or they want to find out what ghosts are around. Uh, increasingly, the culture around us is obsessed with all of these things. It's a little odd to me, to be honest with you, from a Christian worldview. I don't know what worldview all, all of you have in this room. I, don't, I know many of you. I don't know all of you. But uh, it's a little odd to me to be living in a very world today where, where science is king, right? If there was one overruling thing in the U.S. that we kind of want to follow, it's like, hey, show me the proof. We're going to go by evidence-based, fact-based kinds of science, right? It's odd to me to be in that kind of culture that then on one hand says, oh, you can't believe in God, you can't believe in the Bible, don't believe in any of that stuff. But you know what? You might need to get some crystals in your room because they'll give you off a really good spiritual energy and they'll give you a little pick-me-up during the day and they'll help you out. That's odd to me. That's really strange to me. You know, our, our lives are not like the old quartz watch that used to have, you know, in, inside it to make them help them run. Our world, to, to think that the movement of planets and comets and stars and the universe somehow has a bearing on our lives today, or to somehow to begin thinking that karma might actually be really a thing, that what goes around comes around as if the cosmic universe in this world in which we live is in charge, that seems odd to me. To on one hand believe science and to poo-poo God and poo-poo the Bible, look down on that, but then to buy hook, line, and sinker, all of these other mystical kinds of seriously kind of stuff, that's the world that Babylon was in. That's the world that Daniel and his friends in which they lived. So here's the deal. You and I, every time we run into trouble in our life, and trouble can be, not necessarily be a crisis. Daniel and his friends were in huge, had huge challenges. I mean, being, living in a foreign land as teenagers, oh my goodness. By the way, mom and dad, this is not the point of the message today, but do not ever sell your kids short spiritually. Do not ever lower expectations of where your kids and your teenagers can and should be spiritually. Daniel and his friends, as we saw last week, did not want to defile themselves uh, away from God. They're living away from home. They had all of the things that the world could offer before them, and they chose to honor God. Don't you dare sell short your kids and lower the bar. I fear too often in churches we think that, well, you know, teenagers, just give them some pizza, let them have a good time, and, you know, talk a little bit about the Bible and everything be good. Don't fall for that. God can do and wants to do way more in their lives than I think what the typical church is willing to admit today. But back to the first thing. All of us are going to face real challenges and troubles in our life. Where do you go when you're needing help? You see, God tells us in the book of Deuteronomy how dangerous those things are. It won't be on your screen. You won't need to go there. But look what God's opinion is of all of those things. God, when he was establishing the Jewish nation, he said this. He said, when you come into the land that the, that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. I just love that word, by the way, abominable. You say that. You know, how often do we talk about that in our common language? abominable. Don't you follow those practices. There shall not be found among you anyone, this is awful, and this is part of the reason why he hates it, but who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's why, one of the reasons why God hates idolatry. 
People were offering their children as sacrifices to these gods. That's a person who's desperate, who's willing to have something happen in their life that they offer up one of their own. But he puts in that same category, anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, interprets omens, or is a sorcerer, or charmer, or medium, or necromancer, that's somebody who's trying to have conversations with the dead, or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You see, Daniel and his friends were living in a world very different than what they had grown up with. And it's a lesson for you and for me that when troubles hit, we should find our future and our hope and something that's a bit more reliable, something that's a bit more true, and something that's a bit more honoring to God. All of that stuff is either fake or, in some cases, demonic. In many cases, truly demonic. People who are trying to contact ghosts and things, are, they're not really deceased. When people die, they don't need help crossing a river. You lighting some candles and saying things is not going to help them go anywhere at all. They're dead. They are, have moved on to one of two places on the planet. They're not wandering around like souls, like popular, you know, it's going around today. And if you're ever in a world where you're actually having those conversations or talking to someone who's having those conversations, you're actually talking to demons who are masquerading as ghosts, who are pretending to be those. And so the reason God hates all of this stuff is you're playing with things that you know not of. Other than the physical world that we all see and touch and that kind of thing, and whether it's, you know, atoms and particles that we can't see, even small things or outer space, we can't go there. But the physiological, the physical world, outside of that, God, who is perfect and good, rules and reigns supremely over it. And there are two avenues, good and evil, beyond that. Angels and demons. People are either with God or they're not. We shouldn't be pursuing angels because, honestly, angels have, have zero desire to have a conversation with you. They only listen to God and have a conversation with you and me when God tells them to. So don't be bothering pursuing them, all right? That won't get you anywhere. You may as well go to God first. Angels are just messengers. They carry out what God wants them to do. If, if, think about it this way. And this is Christians and people are falling for weirdness more and more all the time. But if I were to throw a big dinner party at my house and I actually had it catered and I had people coming serving food, it would be offensive to me if you came to my home and I really wanted to spend time with you and you to hang out and be a celebration and you just wanted to sit and be with the caterer, the, serve, the person who was serving us. I'd be like, I spent all this money and all of this. Why do you want to be with them? That's what happens when we get all excited about angels because really we're settling for something that's other than what God wants. And then the other side of it are demons who are evil angels that disobeyed God and they fell spiritually. There are, there are no ghosts, middle ground, all this other weirdness that's going around. So you're either talking to God and the ones who come from God, and if it's clearly not God and from his word, then you're really messing with these guys. And that's why God is saying, don't deal with all of them. So who do you go to when you need extra help? Some of you probably pray, played around with Ouija boards when you were younger. Some of you have probably gone and gotten readings from psychics and other things. 
I want you to realize you're playing with some dangerous things when you do that. And you're opening your life up to an area that God says, this is not for you whatsoever. When you and I face trouble, the God of heaven is the one that we should turn to. Look what the second thing I want you to notice this morning is, is that God can be trusted to give us wisdom in the time of trouble. So the next, the next step in the story, the king gets angry. He's ready to kill all of his cabinet members because he's watched them. He knows that half the stuff that they've told him hasn't been true. And he's like, you guys can't tell me what my dream is. What good are you? I'm just going to kill all of you. So he puts out a sentence of death to have all of them killed. Daniel and his friends were among this list. They didn't go, they didn't pursue the stars for truth. They didn't try to interpret dreams. They weren't reading tea leaves. They weren't taking out livers of animals and cutting it open and seeing which way things went. They weren't throwing dice and trying to discern that. They had a direct connection with the God of heaven and they had a sentence of death. And Arioch, the guy that was called by the king, to, had authority to go and kill all of these people because they couldn't answer the king's dream. He was in the dilemma of how to lead his kingdom well. And Daniel is probably about a 17-year-old, says, wait a minute. And he says this to the executioner. 17 years old, I wouldn't have had this wisdom. The Bible says he answered with discretion and prudence. Discretion and prudence for a 17-year-old. He says, why is the king so pressed in this? What's the rush? Why is he killing everybody? He didn't know what was going on. Arioch explained to him like he had this dream. Nobody can tell him the dream. He's upset, so he's going to kill everybody. And Daniel on the spot, he says, set up a time with me with the king. I'll talk to him. I'll share with him the dream. Pretty amazing for a 17-year-old. You and I, when trouble comes, we're complaining, criticizing, spitting nails, whining, crying, all kinds of stuff. Instead of that, instead of worrying and fretting and all of that, Daniel just says, hey, what's going on? I have a God who can address it. There's a God in heaven who can answer this. Look what Daniel says. Daniel pulls his friends together, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, and they pray, and they seek mercy from the God of heaven. And God shows Daniel this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and either God explains it to Daniel or God gifted Daniel to understand it, and Daniel knew exactly what it meant. Read with me in verse 20 what Daniel feels, what he experiences as he understands this dream. He says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light that dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter." Daniel and his friends prayed. Instead of being like the king or those other magicians that turned all kinds of other things that can't deliver and that ultimately have at their source evil and deception and lies and destruction, he turned to God. And he said, God, would you have mercy on us? If you don't have mercy, we're in trouble and we're going to be killed. Would you intervene and would you help? And God answered that prayer because God is a God who can be counted upon to give us wisdom when you and I are in trouble. 
and he explained the dream. He gave him the answers that he needed, did a miracle so that King Nebuchadnezzar could know that there is ultimately a God in heaven who answers. Look what King, when Daniel comes around to talking to the king, look what he says. He says in verse 27, when he meets the king, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. I'll tell you in just a second. Daniel said, King, I'm not smart enough to tell you this. God's told you this. There is a God in heaven who is confronting you right now, King, with your finite mortality, and he wants you to know that your kingdom is going to come to an end. But he is the king who is above all kings, including you. Oh, he doesn't tell him that because he would have lost his head, but that's what the dream means. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees this crazy figure. Any of you ever have crazy dreams? Sometimes you guys show up in my dreams. They're pretty funny, usually, and sometimes it's strange, but anyway, I had a couple weird dreams last night. I won't try to unpack them, and we all know, right? Dreams are, let me say this. Guys, Christians who are following Jesus are following for this more and more. God is not sending you dreams to be unpack what your future should be. That's not the way he communicates to you. You don't need to be going and getting special prophecies and talking to some Christian person who has the ability to interpret dreams. That's not what God normally does. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says in many ways that uh, God in the past has spoken through his prophets. It says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. How does God want to talk to you today? Through Jesus. How does he talk to you about Jesus and through Jesus? It's through his word and through the Holy Spirit who points you to everything. But the Holy Spirit's not in the habit of giving you strange dreams so you can go home and figure out what you ought to be doing in life for your job or your, your uh, person you want to date or marry or any of that kind of stuff. There's a God in heaven that we should pursue. Here's a dream that he had. He sees this tall figure, think 100 feet tall, kind of tall, whose head was made out of pure gold, whose chest and arms were made out of silver, whose belly, abdomen, if you will, and thighs were made out of bronze, whose legs were made out of, today we would say like steel or iron, and whose feet were made out of iron mixed with clay. Tall figure, imposing figure. Think royal, king, warrior kind of figure. And then he sees this rock that is cut, not by made by human hands, but is thrown at the feet of this king, of this person, and it hits him in his feet, and it knocks the figure over, and it smashes his feet to pieces. In fact, he comes down with such a hard crash that it doesn't just fall down or break into pieces, but ultimately it, it falls right into complete dust to where the wind blows away and gone. And this rock that wasn't cut by human hands lands 
And it then becomes a mountain and it fills over the whole earth and it completely takes the place of the king. Daniel goes on and explains. He says, King, O king, you are that golden head. That is you. You are the greatest king around of wealth. But after your kingdom is going to come another kingdom, one of silver that is inferior to that kingdom. After that kingdom, there's going to come one of bronze that's inferior, and it will come to an end. After that one will come another one that is of iron. It will come to an end. And after that one, there will be a mixture even less stable. But after that kingdom, the feet, that rock that comes, is a supernatural kingdom that is going to be established in this earth before which no other kingdom can stand. That is the story of your dream. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. Back at the end, we won't take time to read it, but he says, you are the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He basically pays homage to Daniel and tells other people to worship him, which would have been awful to Daniel, but he knew that he couldn't get out of it with this king. Here's what God was doing. God was confronting Nebuchadnezzar for the first time in his life with the existence of the one true God. In a powerful, profound, and a personal way, he was being confronted with that existence. So here's the thing. When you and I are in trouble, put yourself both in Daniel's shoes and Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. Nebuchadnezzar had trouble. He was trying to figure out how to establish his kingdom, how to make it last, how to make it survive. And God told him in his dream, you can't. There's going to come another kingdom after him. The silver kingdom that came, that was the Mede and Persian. Scholars recognize Cyrus the Great came and conquered and overthrew Babylon. Who came after them? Alexander the Great and the Greeks came and they won the world, if you will. These are the global kinds of kingdoms. But in Carthage, Rome came and defeated the Greeks. He was giving him 500 years of, of history, of prophecy, of what was going to be happening. And God was telling Nebuchadnezzar, King, you may think you've got a great kingdom. You may have some wonderful hanging gardens. Your Ishtar great may, gate may be amazing. If you've seen in history the Ishtar gate and all the incredible things in, in Babylon. But, O oh, King, you're going to absolutely come to an end. On Daniel's side of things, you and I may not win in the world affairs, I've been, it's been interesting watching the, all of the stuff that's heating up for the election year. You know, every week it seems like a new person is running for president. And more so than ever, it seems like you're, you think it's going to be the end of the world if Trump isn't elected, or you think it's going to be the end of the world if he is elected, right? It just, I mean, just two extremes. And you know what reality is, is every kingdom is going to come to an end. Every single kingdom except God's. If your hope is America and this country returning to its past roots of any way, shape, or form, if that's your hope, I'm sorry, that's a pretty weak hope. If your hope is America being enlightened or becoming something better than it's ever been, that's a pretty useless hope too. That kingdom will come to an end. But Daniel, in the middle of that kingdom, was living a life that God was taking care of him in the middle of all of that trouble. You see, the issue isn't who is president or not, and what all the policies, if they're going to be you know, favorable to Christians or not. That's not the issue. 
The issue is, is are we truly trusting and following the God of heaven in our life, living before him in whatever cultural world in which we find ourselves? Daniel turned to God when he needed help, and God supernaturally answered him in that time of need. When you and I are, trying, are struggling and trying to figure out what we should do, whether it's a job, what we should do when it comes to relationships, what we should do with decisions that are in front of us, what we're going to do in those trials and stresses of life, the things that are awful that come up, the things that are just nagging us when they come up. We should be like Daniel, who didn't turn to what was common and popular in the day, not following all of the whims of the day, but instead he continued to turn to God and trust in Him. I want you to know more and more as our culture and our country turns to new age kinds of methods and, and mixes spirituality with science and health. I'll give you a modern example. Mindfulness is a new one that's coming. Much of it is okay. Some of it is absolutely awful. Think about it this way. It's like if you make a, din make a dinner or a lunch for your kids or somebody you care about, and you put just a little bit of arsenic in there, or somebody else did, looks great. Should you eat it? No, not at all. Mindfulness is like that. Is there a lot of stuff that's good? Yeah, you ought to be aware of what's going on. You ought to be in tune with what's going on with your body and you know anxiousness and all this kind of stuff, what's going on around you. But at the end of the day, the goal of life is not to find peace with inside of you. The goal of life is to actually find peace from the one who brings peace, God. And it's turning and trusting Him. You overcome the stresses and the anxieties of the world, not by checking out and getting into some sort of meditative state and trance. Instead, it's going to God who gives you peace in the middle of it. And it's being mindful of Him in the middle of the situations around you. There's a little bit of arsenic in what's coming down the line. And I'm watching Christian after Christian fall for really what's a repackaged Hinduism and New Age in the middle of around us. So instead, make sure that you are pursuing the God of heaven as the source of your hope, as a source of your truth, as a source of the one who will take care of you in the middle of that. He's the one you can depend on. Third thing, and I'm done. You guys are being patient this morning. Wisdom tells us that we should surrender to God and his kingdom. See, you and I will probably never be president of the United States. And for that, we ought to be grateful. <laughs> we shall never be governor in New York. For that, we ought to be grateful. We'll never, most of us probably won't be mayor. Most of us probably won't ever be CEO. Most of us at most will be, you know, uh, Susan and I are the co-captains of Team Pierce. That's about, you know, our big claim to fame in life, right? And that's probably what most of us in this room will be. But we are all just like Nebuchadnezzar. We all have our kingdom that we're establishing. It may be a much smaller kingdom. Mine happens to be just over two acres. I know because I had two pieces of parcels that I put together as I'm trying to lower my taxes because they went up $2,000 this year. Thank you very much for reassessment. So I feel for you, Gilderland, your turn is coming. Uh, I can say that. Um, I'm trying to raise a family and help them to turn out in a way that honors God and makes their way in this world. That's my kingdom. And what this story tells me is, is that my kingdom, no matter what it is, 
my job, my life, my career, my family, my little world that I'm trying to subdue and make in this world will absolutely come to a crashing end. That the only kingdom that's going to last into eternity is going to be the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see, read the last of the story. Daniel tells them what this, the, he, he recounts the whole thing, and we haven't had time to read the whole chapter. But he says this, he says in verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. All of those kingdoms were. Nor shall there be a kingdom left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. There's not going to be another one left. And it will bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. That means this. If you and I do not surrender our lives to the God of this kingdom, who's establishing what he's doing in this world, I, I don't care how famous you become, your life will be a waste and will be blown away like the dust and the chaff into the wind. Our only hope, guys, is to surrender our hearts and our lives to this God who's setting up his kingdom in the world. And that kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. You see, for 500 years after this, the Jews were reading this story. Then there comes this one on the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible says in Matthew 4, as he began his ministry, he, he began to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the kingdom he's talking about. The Bible says in Matthew 4 also that he went and he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom to all of the peoples. When Jesus sent out the 70 uh, disciples out to spread and, and communicate what he was talking about, he said, let them know that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. See, Jesus, God want, is inviting you and me to be a part of his kingdom, to not pledge allegiance to any of these other kingdoms, but to instead surrender our lives to his kingdom. And that comes to us through surrendering our life to Jesus as Lord of our life, and as he becomes in charge, we declare not only what Nebuchadnezzar said, that you're the God of gods, but you are my God. You are in charge of me. I put my life underneath you, and I surrender to Jesus who gave his life on Calvary to die for my sins and to rise from the dead. When you and I do that, we're committing to his kingdom. That means you and I have all the hope in the world, regardless of whether we're in a kingdom of bronze and silver and, and iron, regardless of what happens politically around us, our hope's somewhere else. Just like Daniel. He wasn't distraught. He just went to the God who could take care of him, who gave him wisdom in some deeply troubled times. If he could do that as a 17-year-old with a death sentence on his head, head facing an executioner. What's keeping you and me from doing that tomorrow when our car won't start? When we're trying to figure out how we're going to make ends meet, we're trying to figure out a relationship issue, what we're going to do with our kids. 
what we're trying to pick as a career, what we're gonna do after graduation, how am I gonna pay off all of these loans? If we can't hand, if, if Daniel can do that, why can't we trust in a God and put our allegiance in him? Let me challenge you. Everything that you are living for in this world that doesn't come out or is a part of God's kingdom, in the end, it's going to be absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. Every experience you have, everything you accomplish, everything you do, if it's not a part of God's kingdom, it's going to be blown away. So I'm going to challenge you this morning. As our worship team comes up, I'm going to challenge you. Would you surrender your life to Jesus and live for His kingdom? If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, now's a good time to do that. If you have, are you still living for His kingdom? Or are you subtly beginning to live for your own kingdom? You see, God was trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not in charge, I am. I put you as king, and you're going to come down as king, and there's going to be one after you, and there's going to be one after the next one, and one after the next one. But Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know that I'm in charge. You need to humble yourself before me. God was telling Daniel, Daniel, good job. You trusted me. Keep trusting me because I'm there to take care of you and all of these things that you're going through and in your life. Your hope's in me, and my kingdom will stand forever. So this morning, find hope in that king, align with that king, surrender to that king, pledge allegiance to that king, worship that king. But God gives us his wisdom in the time of trouble because he is king. He is our Lord. Won't you stand as we pray? Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond just according to what you've written. Lord, you love Nebuchadnezzar and you love Babylon. You weren't sharing this as judgment to him. You're sharing it because you loved him and you wanted him to know you and wanted him to know reality. Wanted him to know that all of the junk that all of his soothsayers and mediums and astrologers and wizards and sorcerers could do absolutely nothing that only you could do something. Lord, would you help us to trust you to put aside all of that other junk and to simply just trust you. And Lord, when you don't give us the answer that we're seeking, would you help us to trust you enough to know that we don't need it? At least not right now. And if we did, and when we do, you'll give it to us because you love us, because you're our God. God, thank you that you are in control of kingdoms in this world. Thank you that you're in control of the little things in our lives. And all we have to do is but turn and trust you. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is your opportunity to respond to God. I don't know what he's said to you or spoken to you, maybe how this is intersected in your world. But find your hope in him. Respond to him today. You can sing, worship him, pray, whatever you are. Um, Whatever you're thinking, what's going on, take that next step toward Him. Won't you respond? Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.